Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Father, I don't know why, but my spirit is so moved right now. Will you minister to your people in the room? Those who accept your claims, Jesus, those who don't know what to call you yet. I think the, the truth of our experiences is so often we feel so alone, Lord. We feel so alone. We feel like no one's listening, that you're not listening. But then when we examine your story, we're drawn to this incredible character, this incredible person, Jesus, who came in the flesh, who lived a life that drew all people to him. We couldn't even articulate why we were drawn to you, Lord. Who gave up his life freely. As you said, no one takes your life. I give it up on my own choice, on my own will. And who did not stay in the tomb, but was resurrected. And as the video says, your resurrection is all we have. Your resurrection is all we have. Your resurrection is all we need. Lord, in this period of time, would we cling to the audacious faith, which is the testimony of the saints that has been passed down for thousands of years, that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not there. He's alive. He's alive. Joy was resurrected that day. Joy. And though it does feel like the world is dark, we gather around your table, Jesus, and we know and we sense it in our souls that joy will never be killed again. Life is stronger than death. And so we look to our right and to our left and we see our brothers and our sisters from all across the world. And we pass the bread and the cup. And we claim that our king is alive and we await his return. Lord, thank you that Hope Brooklyn gets to be a part of this incredible story that you're writing in this city, this amazing city full of so many people, so many people who, who feel alone, so many people who don't know that they are so loved and accepted right as they are. They just come to the table, they're invited. Make Hope Brooklyn that type of people. Make this community a people of joy. Only you can do it. So we give you permission. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome to Hope Brooklyn, everyone, the fall kickoff. Yeah. Woo! I know some of y'all probably saw that video. Um, that's actually, spoiler alert, it's a little dated. It's a year old. That video was celebrating our four-year anniversary for Hope Church NYC last September. Um, 
and Hope Brooklyn was a microcosmic blip in that video. I don't know if you caught it. A couple characters, Nathan and Steph and Catherine. Um, this time last year, this time last year, one year ago, I don't know if you know this, one year ago today, we met in this school for the first time. We met upstairs in the cafeteria. There was about 30 of us um, and we prayer walked our neighborhood. And look what God's done in a year. That's so exciting. It's so incredible to be a part of. And I love that the representation of Hope Brooklyn even a year ago started around a table. May it always be so. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if it is your first time, uh, we have a saying that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. We know uh, for us, faith is less a system and it's less what we assent to and it's more of a spectrum that we're turning our faces toward a story um, every day. And so you are welcome just as you are wherever you are. Uh, if you know about the story of Jesus, if you accept his claims about himself, you're welcome. If you're not sure what you think about Jesus, you're welcome too. Um, and we have so much going on this fall. It's really cool. Alicia alluded to it. Folklore is gonna be happening. Guys, I'm telling you, folklore is gonna be so much fun. It's gonna be gathering around good food, good drink, good people, and sharing stories, which is what we need. We need to hear one another's stories for encouragement and challenge. We're going on the fall retreat, which I don't know about you, but I am definitely looking forward to, to get out of this city. Retreats do two things, I think, really well. One, they bring people together in a way that just doesn't happen without an intentional camp. Like, who went to camp growing up? Right? Yes. Camp just brings people together. When you, you, know, you put the marshmallow in the fire, you can't walk away as enemies any longer, you know? You're best friends. Um, and it's also a weekend of rest. And I love Josh Garrels. He's, a, he's an artist. He has a, um, a song where he goes, rest is our weapon against the oppression of man's obsession to control things. Rest is our weapon against the oppression of man's obsession to control things. And by taking an intentional weekend and saying, no, we're not gonna do any work, we're gonna rest in nature. That's, being a, that's a deeply subversive act towards yourself and your heart, which says, I control myself, toward this city, which says, we control you. It's deeply subversive. So um, more information come up on the fall retreat. You wanna be there, guys. It's gonna be a blast. We're gonna start praise and worship nights, or not praise and worship, prayer and worship nights. Uh, we've been having prayer nights throughout the, the summer. We're gonna start once a month creating space where we can come and just worship together, um, pray for one another, be still. It's gonna be really cool. And we have a couple podcasts launching, which is gonna be more information to come. It's gonna be a blast. But probably most important for today, I know Alicia already said it, tables are launching for the year. Woo! Tables, as Alicia said, she explained it so well. They're kind of like Hope Brooklyn's small groups that meet um, throughout New York City and we're expanding the idea behind tables. So after service, the table leaders who are gonna be uh, helping facilitate different tables are gonna be outside in the foyer. Um, some of them might have cookies to try to like lure you in, I'm just saying. But they're gonna uh, be able to answer your questions about the various types of groups happening. Join one. I, uh, I think I was reminded this past week, I was watching The Zookeeper's Wife. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Um, it tells the true story of the Warsaw Zoo and uh, the couple, uh, when during World War II, when the Nazi regime took over Poland and, and uh, erected the Warsaw Ghetto, um, a couple who used their zoo to um, hide Jews and to smuggle them out of the Warsaw Ghetto. And there was a poignant scene in, in the movie, and I, I don't know if it's historically accurate, 
but uh, it, was, it happened during the torching of the Warsaw Ghetto. The, the war had turned, and so the Nazi regime destroyed the ghetto. And so it's showing um, the, these flamethrowers uh, on the ghetto, but it happened in the movie on the night of the start of Passover. And so you see this contrast of flames destroying um, this, this place and this group of people gathering around a table with candlelight and bread and wine and song. And I don't know, it just the fact that what's been going on this past summer, um, I know many of you um, have family in Florida um, or in Texas uh, or many of you from Portland know about the fires that are happening there. Um, it's just, you're tired, you know, we're tired. And there's a certain amount of, I just was reminded that the answer, Jesus' answer um, to the destruction is the table. It's the prepared bread and the wine and the turn to your neighbor and say, hey, um, do you want to come eat with us tonight? That's the answer. And so I, I, I encourage all of you, join a table. If you're here for your first time, like exploring Hope Brooklyn, join a table, seriously. Um, you'll meet some incredible people, you'll find some incredible community, and it's going to be a blast. All right, so um, we're going to take a break. We've been in a sermon series called The Paradigm, and we're going to take a break from this sermon series um, so as to engage a four-week mini-series on faith and work. Faith and work. Now, why? We want to explore during these four weeks the intersection of this story of God uh, and our work. And we want to do that for three reasons. One, fall is the time where new rhythms start back up, right? People are back in school. I know. Bemoan. I get it. I get it. People back in school, jobs are starting back up. They're new rhythms. And so it's a good time to analyze, you know, what does God think about our work? What does God ask of me in my work, whether it's a, a student or in a job? Um, and New York City also is a place where if, if, you, if you grew up here, I know it's all you know, but for myself and probably for many of us who did not grow, grow up in New York City, it is a place where more than anywhere else I've experienced, you are singularly defined by what your hands produce. Like this city does not care about you, but to the level that you can produce something for it. And we want to ask a question of, is, does God think the same way? Does he only care about you to the extent that you can provide something for him or for his church or for one another? Um, we want to explore that. We want to explore the story behind that. And lastly, and what we're going to talk about today, the reason why we want to talk about the intersection of faith and work is because we've inherited a wrong view of faith and work. We've inherited a dualistic view, and we're going to explore why that's the case. And even if you're here and you're like, hey, I'm not really a Christian, that's cool. I would dare say as I start talking about this, you would also be like, oh, wow, I did think that about Christianity. I did think that about Christians. And I'd be like, yes, it's because we've inherited it, and it's wrong. And so we want to explore that view today over the next four weeks in this Faith and Work series. So it's really going to be a blast. So what's the nature of this view? What's the nature of this false view that we've inherited that we kind of need to dispel? If I could sort of sum it up, distill it into one sort of line, it would be this. We've inherited the false dichotomy of the sacred and the secular. 
We've inherited a false dichotomy of the sacred and the secular. Now, what I mean by that, a, a dichotomy is, is simply two things on two ends of the pole, uh, on, and they sort of repel one another. They, they're not attracted. There's, there's no overlap. There's no intersection. And we've inherited this view that there are sacred things, there are holy things, godly things, and there are secular things. There are uh, earthly things, mundane and ordinary and profane things. And really the word secular has kind of developed this uh, pejorative connotation. It, it comes from the Latin word seculum, which simply means per pertaining to an age. So pertaining to this age, the age of the earth. And before we jump into um, why this might be false or misleading, I want to give a brief, brief history lesson of where this view came from, where this false dichotomy came from. Why did we draw such a hard line between the things of God and the things of man? Well, it all started with this guy right here, Augustine, right? For my Bible nerds in the room, they're like, it's always Augustine. It's always Augustine. First of all, I just want to say I have mad respect for Augustine. He was an incredibly faithful man. Uh, he lived during the 4th and 5th century um, in Hippo, which is present-day Algeria. So he was a bishop of the church um, in North Africa. And he lived during a unique period of the world. Um, he was a Roman citizen. And Rome was falling while he was alive. So the, what... There's a lot we could say about Augustine. What concerns us today, in 410 AD, the capital city Rome was sacked by the Goths, the Gothic people. Now, why this is important is because about 100 or so years ago, uh, Rome became a Christian nation. Constantine decided that his empire was going to uh, worship uh, the Christian God. And so over the, the last 100 years or so, before Rome was sacked by the Goths, there was this interesting um, confusion between, you know, God's work being identified with Rome's work. And so when Rome fell to the Gothic people, a lot of people were like, well, what does this mean? Does this mean the work of God is not eternal? Does this mean someone can defeat the work of God? And so Augustine, he wrote a book in relation, thinking through these questions. And the book is called The City of God. And it's a massive book, um, massive. And in essence, what he draws is the distinction between, he says, the world is comprised of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And they're invisible. They're beneath the surface. You can't see how they overlap, but they are distinct. And in that, that theory is the genesis that eventually grew to this absolute polarity of the, the sacred and the secular. Fast forward a couple hundred years, the medieval ages, and you have this, this view of um, the city of God and the city of man not overlapping, but being hidden. You have uh, the Catholic Church bringing it and making it explicit. And they develop the language of the spiritual estate versus the temporal estate. And what they mean is this. They mean there are certain jobs, there are certain roles, there are certain lifestyles which serve God, which God is... Um, pleased with. And there are other jobs and other roles and other lifestyles which do not please God. <clears throat> and if you are called to be a servant of God, you can only be called to one of the jobs in the spiritual estate. 
You have to be a, a clergy member or a missionary or something like that. For all of you teachers and all of you financiers and all of you lawyers out here, sorry. God's not interested in that work. That's of the temporal estate. So you gotta do it, but you do it. But the real way to serve God is to serve the people and the church. So you see that wedge get even further. Fast forward even more to the Enlightenment, a couple hundred years, and you have a man named Immanuel Kant. And Kant puts forth his own iteration of this. He contrasts the phenomenal and the noumenal. And what he means by that is the phenomenal um, is the, the factual, empirical, the stuff we can see. The noumenal is the stuff of the mind and of the spirit. God only cares about the stuff of the spirit, the, the city of man, us, we care about the stuff we can see. And then it goes even further for our purposes in the West into the Second Great Awakening, which is in the mid-1800s, where you have revivalist preachers traveling America, really contrasting heaven and hell to great effect, I should say, really great effect. And heaven, obviously they are speaking in a period where America is industrializing quite rapidly, and so they are warning people against um, the secular industrialisms of the world, and they are calling people back into the refuge of the church to spiritual practices and habits. Um, that's the heavenly stuff that God cares about. God doesn't care about the rest of this stuff. So you see, I mean, that was very brief. We've inherited this view. We've inherited this view of a highly dualistic world. And as it relates to work, it would be this, that if you want to work for God, you can only work for God if you become a pastor or if you become a missionary, not a teacher, doctor, consultant. Maybe you can be a businessman, but it's in the nonprofit field. Definitely not the private sector. All you private sectors out there, I am praying for your soul. Right? <laughs> We've inherited this dualistic world where if you want to serve God in your work, it has to be explicitly work of the church. Has to. Moreover, we've inherited this dualistic world, this, this dichotomy of the sacred and the secular, that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to grow and, and, and following Jesus better, you can only grow through spiritual practices. Spiritual practices meaning prayer, Bible study, worship, not the ordinary daily stuff like raising a family or work. So we've made this huge split between the stuff that God cares about, which is spiritual, and the stuff that he doesn't care about. You've probably definitely seen this in your own worldview, in your own life. And the question is, is this correct? Is this how God views the world? Is this how he views your work? I've kind of already given the answer away. It's no, it's no. But we want to talk about why it's no today. Now, the second pillar, Hope Brooklyn, we have three pillars that sort of undergird our community. We say we're, we're a community of crowds and disciples. And that means wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you have a place at the table here. We say we're a community of the story. Christianity for us is less a system and it's more a story that we find ourselves in. And we say we're a community of friends who eat together face to face. And we do that one really well. That's my favorite one, maybe. I don't know, I can't say that. All three, I love all three. But community of the story is what I wanna talk about today. Because what we wanna to highlight is a biblical story of work. And we wanna see is 
if within this biblical story of work, it's that dualism is there. That if there really is this dualism between the spiritual stuff and the secular stuff. And really when we're talking about a story, we're talking about a worldview, right? We're talking about the ways that you and I see the world. And, and this, this, a lot of this comes from a book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. It's a phenomenal book. I have other resources too, so if you're curious about any of this, come talk to me. But within this story, within this worldview, there are really three questions that we need to ask, which we're gonna ask over the next three weeks. First, how are things supposed to be? It's the first question we need to ask about our worldview. How were things supposed to be? The second question is, what went wrong? What was the main problem that went wrong, that destroyed, that upset how things are supposed to be? And the third question is then, what is the solution? How can the original plan be realized? Next week, we're gonna talk about how work went wrong. The ways we work um, that are misguided. The week after that, we're gonna talk about the solution. But today, we wanna highlight the story. We wanna highlight the biblical story that we find from Genesis to Revelation in here. And then we wanna look at work as one part of that. Now, if I had to distill down the Christian story, the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview, you could do it quite simply in three simple yet profound statements. They are this. The whole world was good. The whole of creation. It was all good. The whole world is broken. All of creation is broken. And third, the whole world will be repaired. The whole world will be redeemed and restored. Now, I know that seems really simple, but I I encourage you to think through the implications of that. The whole world, all of it was good. All of it is broken, and all of it's going to be restored. Now, what does that mean as it relates to our work? Well, the story opens on the very first page. We're presented with a good God, a creator who makes, aka works, a good world from love, who gives life and who calls everything he makes good, who puts in, puts in place processes that spawn more life, and who creates humans to tend a garden. In Genesis 2.15, we're told, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Human nature and our desire to have purpose, to have something for our hands to do, our minds to think, to contribute, to work, that's part of creation. That's not part of the fall. It's part of creation, not part of the fall. I've heard people say before, I've probably said it. What do we say about work? Work is a necessary evil, right? I gotta do it so I can do more important things. Not true, not according to this story. Your desire to work is part of creation. It was good. Why? Because your creator worked and made the world. Work is not a necessary evil. What this means, work is spiritual. Work is spiritual. Work is good, and to work is to be like God. You and I are co-gardeners. We're sub-gardeners in this world. And actually, work is not part of the fall. It's part of the original intention. 
because that's who our maker's like. Tim Keller puts it this way. In the beginning, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. That's important. You find in a lot of um, empires, the king has servants that work, but the king doesn't work. Not in this story. Page one, we see God with dirty hands working the soil, inviting us, hey, come alongside me. Learn to plant a radish. I don't know why a radish. (laughs) Work is not beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. Your work is spiritual. Let me put it this way. Maybe it'll hit home a little bit more. God is just as concerned by how you work as he is with whether or not you pray. God is just as concerned by the way you work, the way you go about it, than whether or not you read scripture. See, we've inherited this view that God is mostly concerned with whether we read scripture and pray. And though that is true, that is falsely dualistic. That work is part of of what it means to be made in the image of God. And therefore, how you work, how you engage in your jobs, the decisions you make, that that is just as spiritual, that is just as forming of you into God's image as whether or not you pray. They're equal. They're equal. Work of the hands, work of the mind, work that builds, work that serves, work that manages, it's all spiritual. God is in it and God cares deeply that you know he is in it. And it's just as formative. That's number one of what it means. Work is spiritual. The second thing it means is there's a recognition that rest and work go hand in hand for God. So he creates humans and he tells them to tend the garden with him. And then he says in Genesis 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now notice this. For God, he rested on the seventh day, but he created humans on the sixth day. So he created you and he said, you're gonna tend the garden with me, but before you do so, Take a day of rest. Take a day of rest. We do not work six days to exhaust ourselves and then rest to sort of like rejuvenate. No, 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 we rest first. Our work comes out of our rest because we were created to live with God. See, and that would be the opposite lie, the lie of New York City. If work is spiritual, then double the hours, right? Be formed to the image of God. No, 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 no. Rest and work go hand in hand. Or Tim Keller puts it this way. I think it's really great. You will not have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. We have to work. That's formative. It's spiritual. We have to work. But work is not the meaning of your life. And that's one of the ways we'll talk about next week that, uh, that work has gone wrong, that the corruption is set in. We pour all our energies and we define ourselves based on our work. No, no, no. Rest and work go hand in hand. So that's point one to the worldview. The whole world was good and work was part of creation. Work is good. Point two, the whole world and therefore work 
is now broken. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit and um, decided to have a go on their lives without God and sort of this corruption, this, this brokenness worked its way into the world, we're told this, God is levying out punishments. And this is what he says. He told the woman, I'm gonna multiply your pains in childbirth. You'll give birth to your babies in pain. You'll want to please your husband, but he'll lord it over you. And he told the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, saying, don't eat from this tree. The very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies is for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk until you return to that ground yourself, dead and buried. You started out as dirt and you'll end up in, as dirt. So the two primary ways in the ancient world that men and women worked, men were, were farmers and women gave birth to children. That was the primary ways. Both of the ways that men and women work are broken and painful now. They're painful. Both childbearing and farming are called painful labor. And it's interesting, uh, W.R. Forrester points out that in language after language, the same word is used for toil and childbearing. And we even see it in our own language. What do companies talk about when they're bringing new products to the market? They're giving birth to new products, right? We conflate this language, both, both childbearing and work. It's all hard now. It's not easy. It's painful. It's toilsome. It's broken. We still have to do it. We still have to work, but it's no longer a delight in many, many ways. It's corrupted. Now, this is an interesting point because what we could do in a situation knowing that is we could look for something in the created world to call evil, to demonize and vilify, but that actually doesn't understand the full story. Look at this quote from Al Walters. He talks about sin, and I know for anyone who's unfamiliar with that word sin, or, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church, so when you think sin, you think of like your parents saying don't sin or something. That's, that's less what sin is. Sin is less action, and it's more a fundamental cosmic brokenness. It's, a, it's an eruption in our cosmic DNA that causes the manifestations of brokenness. It's all the various ways that the earth and everything in the earth falls short of its intended purpose. Why? Because God is no longer fully present. He's separated. So here's what Ah Walter says. He goes, the effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. Whether we look at societal structures, such as the state, or the family, or cultural pursuits, such as art, or technology, or bodily functions, such as sexuality, or eating, or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the great handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of mutiny against God. Now the great danger is to always single out some aspect of God's good creation and identify it rather than the alien intrusion of sin as the villain. Such an error conceives of the good-evil dichotomy as intrinsic to creation itself. See, when we look at something within creation and say, this is the issue, this thing itself is evil, 
what do we do? Then we say that within creation, there's a good-evil dichotomy. But I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote, which says, there's no such thing as pure evil. No one does bad things for purely bad reasons. They do bad things for good reasons that are distorted. Right? In the same way that darkness is not real. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is a perversion. If you look at this, you find that there's nothing within creation that is intrinsically 100% absolutely evil. It's a perversion of the good. So what happens is that throughout human nature, we've tried to identify what's wrong with the world. And so he goes on to say, um, in the course of history, this something has been variously identified as the body and the passions. So Plato and Greek philosophy, they thought the issue was in, was in matter. And once we died and our spirits escaped the bodies, we could be free and whole again. As culture, in distinction from nature and Rousseau and romanticism, as authority figures and society and family and psychodynamic psychology, as economic forces and Marx, as technology and management and Heidegger and existentialists. As far as I can tell, the Bible is unique in its rejection of all attempts to either demonize some part of creation as the root of our problems or to idolize some part of creation as the solution. The Judeo-Christian story is unique in its unequivocal affirmation that all creation, all creation, which means all work and all manner of work is good. It was good. And it's equally clear in its affirmation that all creation, which means all work and all manner of work, even my work as a pastor is broken and fallen. The distinction between the sacred and the secular is not in the nature of the work. It's not my work is sacred and your work is secular. God cares about my work and doesn't care about your work. My work is just as toilsome and broken and I can turn it into an idol just as readily as you can do it with yours. The distinction is not in the nature of the work. The distinction is between the uncorrupted one and the corrupted world. Which is why you have pastors who cheat on their spouses and who embezzle money and who are spiritually and emotionally manipulative and exploitative. You have that because it's not about the job. The job doesn't make the person holy. And it's also why you have dishwashers in 12th century France who do nothing but cook and wash dishes who people travel from miles around to hear their wisdom because there's such a light and a joy that emanates from them. I'm, I'm talking about Brother Lawrence, who we're going to talk about later, who was a dishwasher, but he was so full of the gospel. The distinction, friends, is not the nature of the work. The distinction is in the one who is uncorrupted and the world that is entirely corrupted. Which brings us to the third point. The whole world was good, the whole world is broken, and the whole world is going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored. The Jewish people have a concept. It's called the Tikkun Alam. It means the repair of the world. And this is important. This is important for us because contra the second great awakening and the revivalist preachers, you might have heard this, this distinction between heaven and hell, right? And you need to um, become a Christian because um, the house of the world is burning down. And God is like a fireman who's coming into this burning house and he's plucking people from it. 
and saving them, right? No, 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 no. God's going to save the house. God's going to save the house. You get that? You're not leaving the earth and going to heaven. Heaven's coming here. Heaven and earth are going to unite again. We are already right now part of the new kingdom that is manifesting itself in the world. The table's being set in the presence of a burning world. But that fire's going to be put out. That's the tikkun alam. It's the repair of the world. Which means all manner of the creation, relationships, societal structures, work, it will become good again. It will bear fruit. It won't be toilsome. It will testify to the light of the creator. So what does that mean as it relates to our work? Colossians 3, Paul puts it this way. And I like the the message translation. Uh, Paul says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though it's invisible to spectators, is with Christ and God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, when he shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. The real you. The glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of death. So servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters. And don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God. Confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. And masters, treat your servants considerately. Be fair with them. Don't forget for a minute that you too serve a master, God in heaven. What he's saying is the real distinction is between those who have yielded their hearts and their lives to this Jesus, to the uncorrupted one. And he's saying, now you're part of the new kingdom. Act like it. Act like it. It's not in the nature of the work. It's in who it is you serve. So whatever industry you're in, whatever part of work you're in, work in it as if you were working unto God. He's describing what C.S. Lewis calls a good infection. Think about it like a virus. A virus starts small, but it infects the entire body, the entire host. Well, in a sense, Jesus, the uncorrupted one, has returned, and now he's the good infection. He's the one who was killed but was not defeated by death. And now, for those who allow it, he's spreading a new virus that's going to repair the entire world. So what matters is not the work, but the way it's done, which is a reflection on for whom it's done for. As A.W. Tozer says, it's not what a person does that determines whether their work is sacred or secular. It's why they do it. The motive is everything. Let a person sanctify the Lord God in their heart, and they can thereafter do no common act what does this mean it means you might have heard from churches in the past you might have even heard from me implicitly because I inherited this as well that if you want to please God if you want to please God then what you need to do is do spiritual things like read and pray but that's false I mean that's true but it's not entirely true 
There's more to it. See, the full understanding of the Christian story means everything's being repaired. Your work is being repaired. So it's as Dorothy Sayers says. I love this. She goes, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to get drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours, come to church on Sundays. What you've heard in the past is me, the pastor, say, hey, if you want to please God, stop getting drunk, come to church. Which though true, and we can talk about that, it's not primary. It's not primary. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion, his God makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What God expects of you is whatever line of work you're in, you should do it as unto the Lord. That's the very first demand that Jesus levies upon you. That you bring all of your gifts, all of your skills, all of your talents into the field where you are in. And ask tough questions. So maybe some of you here are like, hey, this is not the right field for me. And that's part of the discernment process. And we'll talk about that. But when you find that, that area where you come alive, that you bring all of yourself and you bring the, the best of it. You make really good tables. That's the first thing expected of you. To be part of this Christian story is to take full inventory of your gifts, your skills, your desires and passions and offer every single one of them up to God to touch and infect and thereafter to live a life and to work in such a way that seeks the kingdom first. Whether that be table making or dishwashing or child rearing or software developing or stock funding or church planting. It's all spiritual if it's offered to God. Now we're gonna talk later about how we do that, but today, hopefully what you see is that dichotomy between um, to be a Christian and to serve God in my work is only to do certain jobs, like pastor, full-time pastoral work. It's not true. And, and to, be a, to be formed into God's image is only to do spiritual tasks like prayer or, or confession. It's not true. Your work and the way you work is just as spiritual and the first demand Jesus would ask upon you is to bring the fullness of yourself and to serve your work as if you were serving him. That's the first thing expected of you. And then don't get drunk and come to church. So Paul says in Romans 12, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. He develops the well-formed maturity in you. So your first task as a Christian educator is not to evangelize your colleagues. Your first task as a Christian educator is to teach your children as if you were teaching Jesus himself. Your first task as a financier is not to lead a Bible study. Your first task as a financier is to bring the fullness of your intellect and your skills and to work into your job as if unto the God, unto the Lord. And maybe in that discernment process, you'll realize that your, your industry you're in is broken. I dare say you will. And that means it'll put you at odds with some of the, the practices, with the way um, the industry works and the way you're gonna have to work. But you're still gonna bring the fullness of yourself. No shoddy tables. No shoddy tables. That's the first demand placed upon you. 
The story we inhabit says that the world God is healing includes every aspect. Every aspect, which also means your work. So no more idolizing of it. No more hating it. No more cheating in it or unethical practices. No more selfishness in it. The work is good. We have to relearn how to do it good again. And I know my grammar was off there, but I wanted to prove a point. We have to relearn how to do it good again. When God looked out on creation and said, this is really good, he was talking about work. And when he said, hey, go till the garden and do a really good job. The work is good. I want to invite the worship team back up. I want to close with this. I alluded earlier to a dishwasher, Brother Lawrence. He worked as a dishwasher and a chef or a cook in a 12th century French monastery. People would travel for days to meet with him, to talk with him. And the reason why is because they found such wisdom in what he said. They experienced such a, a pull, a light about him. He was a dishwasher. He wasn't a pastor. He didn't have a pulpit Sunday morning to teach. He was a dishwasher. And yet people were drawn to him. They said, this is something not of this world. This is something different. That's the goal. He has a book called Practicing the Presence of God, and he puts it this way. He says, you will tell me that I am always saying the same thing. What is true? For this is the best and easiest method I know. And as I use no other, I advise all the world to do it. We must know before we can love. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often. For our heart will be with our treasure. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him who has given me grace to work and afterwards I rise happier than a king. Your work is forming you into God's image and God cares just as much about how you work, about who you're working for as he does with any other spiritual practice. I'm gonna close with a story. It doesn't deal with work specifically, but it gets at this idea. So last summer, uh, we did something at Hope Brooklyn called Theology on Tap. And we'd meet and, um, at a pub and we would just discuss theology. We'd discuss ideas and it was so much fun. And I remember on one of them, um, Josh, uh, he came and he brought his daughter, Julie, who was one. And consequently, he didn't get to partake in a lot of the discussion, as anyone with kids would probably attest. Uh, he was chasing her around, he was playing with her, um, and concerning himself with her. And I remember thinking as I was leaving, because the whole reason we had gathered was to talk about God, to know God, so as to love God, so as to be formed into God's image, right? And I remember as I was leaving thinking that this evening, Josh achieved that goal better than we did. Because he cared for another more than for himself. He would have wanted to join in the conversation, but instead, he took care of his daughter. And the reason why I end with that story is I want to show the point that what we do and how we do it is just as formative for our spiritual life, for us understanding this story, as whether or not we're coming to church on Sundays or we're praying or reading.
Your work is good. It's spiritual. You've been called to it. Offer everything you have for it. Pray with me. Lord, um, sometimes it feels like we've received such an insufficient view of your story. Your story is far richer, far more robust. The whole world is good. The jobs that you've called each person in this room to is good. It's broken for sure, but it's good and it is to be redeemed. I pray you speak to everyone in this room and you start encouraging them and you tell them that you're with them, that you care deeply about the way they work, that their first job, their first task is to do their work as if they were doing it for you, to bring 100% of their effort into the vocation. That they have been called to this job just as much as I have been called to mine. And that you show no, no differentiation. You show, um, you're not more proud of me for doing spiritual church work than you are of them for doing the work, other work, for being a teacher, being a lawyer, or a baker, that all of it is good, all of it's being redeemed. And I pray, Lord, that um, each person here would open up their hands and their heart to listen to you, and they would ask, how can I serve you in this job? And as we uh, think through our industries over the next couple weeks, would they think through it with the underlying premise that their job is spiritual, that it's important, that you're redeeming it, and the work of their hands will last, that you're with them in it. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for your good infection that is returning and Uh, In this period where it's tough to see sometimes, we open our eyes and we ask that you give us your vision, that we can see the world the way you see the world, that we can see that though all of it is broken, it's all gonna be restored. Lord, give us courage to step into our work in that way. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.